Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. All right, excellent, good, good and excellent. So, okay, serious question, serious question for you. Very theory, very heavy. Yeah. Okay, you are given the ability to move to Halloween Town, right? Um, for, okay. for the sake of this hypothetical, let's say that there is an incredibly juicy fully funded research position at Halloween Town University, a.k.a. Witch U, which we'll get to in the fourth movie in the series, would you move to Halloween Town? Um, I mean, that's a tough question. But if you're offering me, like, permanent job, I kind of have to take it. Okay, what, what about in a vacuum? What if you had the same position where you are now and the same position also opens up in Halloween town. Well, you see, you see, this is, this is a kind of difficult question because to me, Halloween town, like, can we not make Halloween town wherever we are? Can we, can we, (laughs) you know, can we, can we, can we not like let, let the, let the, let the revolutionary spirit of Halloween town permeate, our day-to-day praxis without needing to withdraw to a to a to a segregated space. Um as as the great as the great um spooky theorist and fan of the Halloween Town franchise, uh Karl Marx put it, um the philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world. The point is to change it so that more of it will be like Halloween Town. I mean that's that is one of my favorite Karl Marx quotes because it's one hundred percent true. Yeah. What yeah. about you? What about you? Would you would you take would you make the move? Oh I mean, yeah, one hundred percent. Nice, right? One hundred percent. Of course, nice. I'm moving to Halloween Town. <laughs> snap, yes, snap, yes, one hundred percent. I am moving to Halloween Town. Day one, I'm just going to become a vampire or something. This I mean, I assume yes that you decision. live there already. I assume you live. I think you you've just lied to me about living in Chicago. But I assume you live there already. Well, the the horror vanguard crypt is actually on the outskirts of <laughs> Halloween Town. Yeah, uh, Mayor yeah, yeah. Mayor, uh, Mayor Calabar did not take too kindly to us attempting to unionize um, the monsters under his thrall. So we were we were exiled. Um, I mean, well, there is one other thing that we should acknowledge that we are we are we're starting a journey here. We're starting a journey. Um, Given that we, we're dealing with the first Halloween Town, um, it is now inevitable that our special episode of Halloween Town Two: Calabar's Revenge with China Mievel will happen. <laughs> oh, I would, I would love that. So that would just be the most fun, imaginable thing. I mean, we we we're manifesting it. We're we're putting it into the into the great cosmic ether. If Aggie Cromwell taught me anything. And watching this movie for the 58th time last night, uh, uh, the power is inside you and you need to want something uh, uh, at the core of your being to make it real. So here I am, China Mayville, (laughs) slide into our DMs, come on the pod. Uh, Hello, everybody. It is, uh, it's your horror vanguard for the week. I'm I'm John, otherwise known as the Liquorate Guy, joined as always by... By my your friendly neighborhood ghoul, uh, <laughs> Halloween Halloween Town uh, Halloween Town audio producer extraordinaire <laughs> Ash, how are you doing, my friend? Oh, so 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 good, so good to be in Halloween Town this time of year. Um, now I have to admit, I had never really heard of Halloween Town. <laughs> I had, I had not, I had not seen it uh, before today. Um, watching it to prep for 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 our podcast, and I, I figure maybe maybe quite a lot of our audience who are not American might not be that familiar with it. So, you know, maybe it's I don't know. Would you mind just kind of laying it all out for us? What what, what is what are we dealing with today? Here on the show, we often poke fun at Disney and rightfully spit in the eye of a behemoth that would subsume the sum total of the human creative endeavor. 
But we must ask ourselves, who is Disney? What is Disney? It's popular to frame Disney as some kind of void-scent vampire, a being of the abyss that is here to drain culture. And that is absolutely 100% correct. However, what if we flip Disney on its head? What if instead of focusing on the corporate vacuum that is hoovering up art, we look at Disney as a mass of working class people, some unionized, some not. Disney is not the encyclicals that come from the House of Mouse. It's the janitors that toil in the subterranean labyrinths of the theme parks. Halloween Town provides us a window into this inverted Disney. Witches fighting against a liberal politician who pushes, who pushes right-wing agendas forward. Monsters struggling with their self-image in the face of a society that degrades them. Middle-class parents cleft to the ideology of their oppressors because they think themselves safe in their suburban enclave. No, we must pose, a China, as China Mayville once said, a socialist defense of monsters. Mayville would go on to say in that same speech, Once we start standing with the monstrous, we're standing with monsters and the monstrous made figures throughout literature and history, because the disavowed throughout history have always had the sneaking sympathy of those suspicious of power. This reveals something important to us the location of Halloween Town. This is not some fictitious set of props in a Disney backlot. It's here. It's with us. Our reality is one of monsters. We are those monsters. The only choice left is to decide which side are you on. From Harlan County to Halloween Town, the fight is identical and our comrades are everywhere. We only need to see them as they are. Join us as we discuss Halloween Town. Ah, I'm always here for bringing up uh, China Mayville's excellent 2013 speech, uh, conference talk about Halloween. Um, yes, let us let us explore the neighborhood. Um, and shall we shall we shall we begin by entering the, the formalism zone? Yes, and, and that means we are now officially talking about Disney. God help us all. Yes, absolutely. Well, okay, where, where should we start? We're talking about a Disney movie. Where do you want to begin? By dealing with the House of Mouse. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's October, and um, I think this is an appropriate way to treat a, a monarchic house that has overlorded over a huge chunk of society for a very long time. Um, but Disney, I, I think, I think we need to have like a more useful left appraisal of what Disney is. Um, it tends to just be snap reactions against. You know, the Marvel movies and kind of the vague machinations of Disney corporate, which is good. But I think we can go deeper. I think we can go a lot harder and a lot more effective, right? Disney isn't just a board of directors that randomly decides a fairy tale is no longer in the public domain. Disney is, just like any corporation, a gigantic block of the working class. And because this is Disney, too, this has to be an international approach. Right, like Disney isn't an American company, it really. Disney's a global thing now, right? There are Disney theme parks all over the world. Disney, Disney makes product everywhere. We could talk about uh, Disney as a vehicle for American cultural hegemony on a global scale, which I think is important. Uh, but we should also focalize the international aspect of this, right? And I think that this this is a you know like 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 as I said in the pricey, we're monsters, right? We need to have our fangs back. You know, like it's 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 all well and good to slap around a Marvel movie for being military propaganda, which which we should of course do, but that's kind of that's kind of basic, right? That's kind of the low hanging fruit. Um, so I'm 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 here I'm here calling for us to kind of uh, have have a more effective resistance to what Disney is, an appraisal of what Disney is. What, what do you think? Well, what do you think that would look like? Well, what do you I mean, think a like, more effective appraisal looks like. Well, I, th I think it starts here. It starts with the criticism, right? Like, it starts with the way we talk about Disney. You know, because when I see Disney critiqued on the left, I see Disney critiqued as a board of directors. 
and not Disney approached as unionizing opportunities, as solidarity with workers, as ways we can get our color our culture and our art back in our hands right like like disney gained its fame and popularity and money by taking works from the public domain and locking them back off right like like all of the things that disney makes is just stuff it shoveled out of the public domain and now it's hard to work in those spaces because now they're disney spaces you know, and Disney is this eternalized thing, right? Like Walt Disney is long in his horrid and nightmared grave, um, but the the corporation still keeps these things going. I mean, here's 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 what I think. Um, here's what I think. I think the the problem is that people tend to kind of make this. There's a I, I'm working on a video about about capitalism and, and horror. And the phrase that's really kind of key to to this video is like, it's not personal, it's just business. And I think the problem is that people render their critiques in personalized terms. Yeah. And he, I I sort of agree with you. I sort of agree with you with what you're saying. Um. Uh. That 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 you know there are lots of lots of working class people who work for Disney, but I think it's very. I think it's kind of a little bit uh, of a misstep to equate them with Disney because working class people know who their enemy is, right? Like yeah. you don't need to, lo- you don't need to. And let, let's be clear. If we're interested in culture and art, then Disney is the enemy, but it isn't like, it's not like there's a guy sitting in a room who's, who is making these decisions. There is a structural uh, system in place, which creates certain incentives to enable certain patterns of action. Like, it isn't personal. It's just business. You know? Uh, the person who said it most clearly was Michael Eisner. He said that there was no obligation for Disney to make art. Its only obligation was to make money. And if it made money, then it would make art as a byproduct of that. And I am paraphrasing. but And just to be clear here, I'm not saying that Disney is these people or are these people i'm saying that these people own disney disney is rightfully and should be rightfully when i say disney i mean like everything that disney materially is you know the the grounds upon which the theme park stands the rides themselves the the art that is made here it should belong to the people who actually do the making Right, like, like this is a this is a very a very basic left sentiment, right? Like people are entitled to what they create, and in in that sense, they are they are the makers of Disney, right? Eisner and these people in like I don't know whatever the the gilded Disney Tower in the center of the theme park that stare out like the eye of Sauron. They do nothing, they have nothing, but you know we live in well, a capitalist society and it's disbalanced. Yeah, I mean, they they don't do nothing. What they do is try and naturalize what they've done, right? So those choices to make basically military propaganda so they can market it to tweens and teenagers under the guise of comic books. There, there were there were a series of of naturalized choices, right? So I I kind of I I agree with you. I I I I'm, I, th- I think it's a mistake to to just be like oh disney equals evil because that falls into the trap of kind of moralism uh which means that you end up just kind of not getting anywhere politically i think it's much more productive to be like okay what can we turn against how can we turn disney against itself exactly but this is what brings up a kind of point that i think is useful to think about which is like uh, this is a kids movie it's a disney kids movie uh, and it's worth, I think, thinking about what are kids' movies for on the various levels that films have meaning. Uh, firstly, they're there to make money because it's a pretty reliable demographic. <laughs> uh, and secondly, they're there to kind of like... Uh, uh, kids' films actually kind of like... All, all, all fairy stories have a kind of didactic quality, right? They're there to sort of impart a moral lesson but because this is produced by disney it's also about creating loyal consumers right it's about interpolating the viewer as a disney fan you identify them oh you watched halloween uh halloween town 
you got to watch Halloween Town 2, Calabar's Revenge. Otherwise, did you even like the first one? What, what do you think about that? What do you think about this idea of like, what, what, are, what, what, are, what are kids' movies for? I mean, I think this is a really interesting question. And what I would say to this is that we need to do two children's movies was what we did with Troll 2. You know, like our initial failure with the grappling with Troll 2 is that we did not respect it, right? We, we we did not get on the level of Troll 2 and then grapple with it. And I think there's this tendency to shovel children's movies into the children's movies bucket and then ignore them, right? Or or make passing commentary about their simplicity and then continue continue forward. But I think they get a lot more fruitful and things get a lot more interesting when we when we bring the tools, you know, we, we bring this kind of critical theory to bear on the text as we are doing yeah, today and in Halloween time. And it's and it's not it's not in any sense to say that simply because certain films have an ideological purpose or certain films are uh, didactic and that's a kind of impart a, a banal kind of moral that they don't need that they they're not good or they, they don't have kind of like qualities to them that are interesting and critically fruitful um but i think it is important to recognize that like the the purpose of disney of disney films is to make disney film watches <laughs> that's 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 what they're for and i do think it's it's when we get into some of the discourse of this film uh you cut there are ways in which you can start to see that come out a little bit. I, I, th- I think that it's important to recognize that Disney is on the franchise game. You know, like, like these are post-Harry Potter texts we're dealing with, which means everything is franchised or everything is kind of created with that initial impulse of a franchise potential. And that's not unique to Disney, right? Like, like this, this, this idea starts outside of Disney, you know, like the, this is just uh, how mainstream media creates art these days. Things are franchise potentials, and there's always that hunt for the next ultra viable franchise. You know, part of the success well, think, of comic book movies is is what we're dealing with here. Yeah, but I think what makes Disney unique is is what it has in terms of reach, distribution, and scale. It isn't. You're right. Oh, it yeah, isn't, totally. It isn't. It isn't. It isn't qualitatively different. Yeah, but no, there's, there's no Friday the different. 13th theme park located all over the world, right? Like, you know, Friday the 13th is not an international conglomerate. There, there's a huge material difference between, like, the Friday the 13th franchise kind of stumbling about and reanimating occasionally and Disney willing something into existence on a global scale. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's It's about scale. And I think once you have a certain accumulation of scale and concentration of scale it does inevitably have a kind of like warping effect on the sort of field that you exist within um and you know in some ways you can read the moral lesson of halloween town in very straightforward very simple and very kind of uh, positive terms but you can and i think we sort of should be willing to sort of dig a little bit below the surface um to to see the the ideological interpolation of the presumed audience that's happening at the same time. Oh yeah, totally. And I think we need to go a layer deeper than that too, right? Like, I don't think it's enough to just uh, like undermine uh, the the intended kind of ideological project that is every single piece of media Disney creates. I think we have to just actively reclaim them. You know, D- Disney is going like, here is Halloween Town one at the beginning of the Halloween Town extended merchandise multiverse. Uh, please continue buying Halloween Town product. Um, you know, we have, we have to go a layer deeper and be like, no, like this is, this is ours now, Disney, you, you no longer have claim here in such a small way as we can. Right. Obviously that is a massive project that entails far more than a single criticism podcast could ever accomplish. But nevertheless, like, you know, many hands make light work. And, um, if you would like to assist in the ongoing task of recuperating, and deterring culture away from the ca- from the from the capitalist he- uh, hegemony that controls and saturates our lives with with their their desperate desire to 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 turn our dreams into finance for themselves, then you can absolutely do that by heading over to patreon.com/slash horror vanguard because your support 
helps us to keep doing it helps us keep doing this uh in return you get early access to every episode that we make you get bonus episodes every month and access to the spookiest discord server uh on the left that talks about the two great things in life the three great great things in life friendship horror movies and communism um so please do check out the patreon if you enjoy what we do and with that on with the show Speaking of communism, did you know that Halloween is an inherently communistic holiday and everyone on the right does not deserve this or have access to it? Correct. <laughs> I think that's that's one of the... So, I mean, like, it's it's Halloween, so we have to talk about the Ch- China Mayville's 2013 um, Halloween and... What is it titled? Halloween and Communism or something like that? Um. But one of the points he makes in there is that, like, and this is, I think, it holds true incredibly well, but that, like, on the left, we often get kind of uh, uh, branded with the mark of destroying other people's fun. And that's because good (laughs) is what we do. And, like, so go go on, go on. So for people who are not sort of super familiar, why, why do we make this claim? Why do we sort of very strongly state that halloween is is a socialist festival i mean i think there's a lot of there's a lot of strains that that we that we can pick at here right I, and i think we have to counter uh so there's like like every and it's and you know god knows it's going to happen today but every halloween this happens every halloween some right hack does the uh you know like oh what if we redistributed your candy and then they talk about how their kids started crying or something like that some obvious lie and and the the thing here is that like the the right has no conceptualization of anything and and so they reduce things down to these childish and overly simplistic uh ways of parsing the world and i think that halloween first and foremost is a holiday of monsters right it, it's you know much much like halloween town right literally everywhere you go we're, we've all we're all monstered right we're all made monstrous by the system we live in to various degrees and extents and in different ways that have different material impacts. But Halloween is such a good holiday for connecting into this, to connecting into that spirit, to recognizing that, you know, by, by putting the mask on and becoming some kind of costumed creature, you're in fact revealing a lot about your position in the kind of greater class strata. Uh, yeah. And you know, there are lots of other arguments we could make. We could talk about, um, you know, harvest festivals and the disruption of like normal working patterns. We can talk about the overturning of kind of rules and laws that uh, Halloween um, kind of mandates and permits. But I think the important thing is to kind of point out the ways in which Halloween is the expression of a kind of detritus of history, right? Stuff that we were supposed to have left behind for our perfectly rational, carefully managed capitalist present. But its continuing presence raises the the specter of an alternative future um, that is in, you know, unexpungible, from the the kind of social fabric of capitalist totality. Try as it might to completely totalize the horizon of our experiences. Things like Halloween, uh, things like the reemergence of monsters, um, open the door just a crack to a non-capitalist alternative. Hell yeah. So how how would you then connect that into into today's Disney made for TV children's movie? Uh yes, okay. So well, in a way, how does this film start? It starts with the 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 absolute exile of the non quote unquote realistic. You know, the kids want to go out trick or treating, they're not allowed to. Nobody comes to the house. They're trapped in the kind of what I sort of called the the bland disenchantment of suburbia. Uh, everything is 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 what it is. There is no potentially imaginative capacity to re-enchant the world. The fantastic, or or to put it another way, the future, 
even if that future is just an echo of a different past, has been expunged and cancelled. That's where the film starts, right? Oh, yeah. And I think there's a lot to, to kind of say about where Halloween Town starts, right? Like that. Oh, my God. What is the mother's name? Fuck. I've seen this movie so many times. Why am I blanking on her name? Gwen. So, like, I think it's important to kind of, like, pick apart the, the the just the sheer weirdness of Halloween Town, right? Like, I don't think this is your standard Disney release. Um, and, and I think part of that has to do with its proximity to the monstrous. You know, Disney Disney does not do spooky. Disney doesn't do horror. They, they, they release some stuff occasionally in this vein, but this definitely is not the Disney wheelhouse. Um, this is not the wheelhouse of the House of Mouse. Um, that is a much more bland text. Um, but what, so what, what's going on here is that Gwen is the mother of Marnie and two other children. Uh, Gwen is a witch from Halloween Town. Um, she came to Earth, as people from Halloween Town do, on Halloween to kind of celebrate and wreak havoc. Um, and just have a good time in general. Fell in love with a mortal and then abandoned... The, the Halloween town ways abandoned being a witch and has denied this reality to her three children. Um, Marnie, the oldest it's her 13th year. And at the end of Halloween on her 13th year, if she hasn't already started her witch training at Halloween town, she loses her powers forever. Um, her mom is dead set on sentencing her to a mortal fate. And that's kind of the onset of this movie. We find these things out later on as we move through it. But I think like this, the disenchantment of suburbia is really important here, right? You know, there are so many ways that you can read that. You know, you 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 could read that as the the generational uh, drift that is caused by diaspora as people try to assimilate into dominant cultural hegemonies. You can read that as you know the the suburbs as this kind of illusory middle class space, right? And middle class parents attempting to convince generations that they're not actually part of the working class. There's some weird uh, uh, liminal zone that doesn't actually exist, you know. And I, I think that, that that for me is one of the things about Halloween Town that winds up being so powerful because that thread runs through the movie. Whether you, what aspect of Marnie's character that she's identifying with and discovering by recovering her roots, that is a useful conversation that we have. That like from a left Marxist political perspective, we can latch on to that, right? We can we can just get in it. Yeah, there are lots of ways that you can kind of read this this division. Um and personally I'm inclined to read it sort of like metaphysically. Right, it's about the ex the the kind of elimination of of the fantastic within day to day life, right? So, like suburbia is a kind of totalizing horizon, um, and and has kind of it it is the domestic expression of a kind of managed rationalized capitalism, uh, which has no place for the disorder that the monstrous represents, right? Totally. So I guess I guess I guess this this kind of brings up a bigger question, which is like, what what is what are monsters for? You know, I I know and I know there are a lot there are, there is no kind of like set answer to this, but maybe it's useful to talk about that in the context of Halloween Town. Like, what are, what are monsters for in this world? What what kind of function do they serve? I think this is an incredibly interesting question and one that I didn't I didn't think about while watching this but the first thing that jumps to my mind is that the monsters in Halloween Town are all deeply blandly humanized. Um we we get countless moments throughout the movie where it's just monsters doing stuff and a lot of this is doing bits. Yeah, They're doing, just bits. doing bits. Yeah. And a lot of these are set up as comedy bits, and some of them do not land very well at all. Um, uh, you didn't, you didn't like the two guys drinking espresso. Uh, you didn't like that? No, because I'm both of those guys, and except we're not fighting, <laughs> we're just drinking espresso constantly, despite the fact it hurts. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I you didn't, you didn't, you didn't 
go nuts for the skeleton cab driver. I, okay, hang on. We, we are not we're not talking shit about Benny on Horror Vanguard. Solidarity. <laughs> Benny is a union man. He drives the cab. His work is respectable, and he he livens up everyone's trips with his banal humor. But I actually I actually think your point is super important. This idea that um, this film essentially humanizes. Or, or in a in a way, uh, demonsterizes its monsters. Right, they become very mundane. They become just like us, in fact. Uh, and so, like, there's a really good essay essay by uh, Jeffrey Cohn on monster theory, uh, and Cohn makes the point that classically monsters have always represented a kind of boundary position. The monster is both a warning and a revelation of something. You know, it's there to warn you off going too far outside the bounds of whatever it might be. But it's also uh, showing you something about the nature of existence. And I think what's super interesting about this is that, like, Halloween Town is, is it's just another town, right? It has an ice cream shop. It has, it has a cab driver who knows everybody. It has uh, a beauty parlor run by a werewolf. Like, it's just it's just another place. And what's super interesting to me is, like, the monsters have just become kind of like everybody else. And I think one of the things that I find interesting about that is they still retain their monstrous in, monstrosity in doing this. You know, like, uh, the cab driver is literally a skeleton, you know, we have we have a dentist who is uh, a kind of ultra monstrous vision of the tooth fairy doing dental work on an, on a vampire. We've got a ghost in a spa, um, but the way they become human is by being humanized, right? Is by having this their 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 essential humanity recognized without kind of forcing them back into a non monstrous mold, um, and, and that I think is played out. So there's a character called Luke. Um, and Luke is like Luke is the bad boy in town who's who's not so secretly working for the big evil shadow monster guy. Um, Calabar. <laughs> but And we will get to Calabar. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna Calabar and the Witch discourse is gonna happen in a bit. Um but the thing the thing about Luke is that like he he's kind of the the counter example to this, right? Uh, he, he, in effect, trades his loyalty over to Calabar so Calabar can make him handsome on human terms. You know, he's some kind of, like, bridge troll-looking guy, naturally. And and I think, like, his whole character arc is, is him discovering that, like, who he was originally is not only good, but it was better, right? He should have never fallen into this kind of, like, oppressive vision of his own body, right? This dysmorphic self-gaze need is something that he needed to find his way out of to find his way through and for him that involved rediscovering himself and i think that that that's kind of a that's like a powerful lens that this movie is offering us you know and, and sure like it, it intra the text of the movie it's played off as this trite like oh the real beauty is who you are inside all along or some junk like that which is a perfectly serviceable thing that kids need to realize at some point i guess but we can take that and be like okay like what is this where are we going next and where where do you think where do you think that does lead oh i think like everything we've been talking about is where that leads you, you know like like luke as a vehicle for so many discussions luke realizing that his status as something that monstrous Right, like his his identity as something that the dominant kind of human centric, I guess, in the terms of Halloween Town, viewed as being monstrous, isn't something he should have ever tried to throw away. That the problem isn't him. The problem isn't an individualized failure. The problem is a systemic failure to recognize space for him as something else, as something that was othered. What are your thoughts? Well, I think this is super interesting because. It's the, that othering happen. He's he's a monster to other monsters, right? You know, he's he's he he appears as the kind of like handsome guy to the to the Cromwells when they arrive in Halloween Town, but 
but he's he's a monster to the other monsters. And I think this raises a kind of bigger kind of move that happens in 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 horror film and especially kind of kids horror film from from around this period onwards actually which is the monster no longer stands external to anything but is internal to human subjectivity and human subjectivity and monstrousness whatever that might mean are co-constitutive so um the the film that this really reminded me of is hotel transylvania particularly in how it understands what the relationship of like humans to monsters truly is so so instead of the monster being something that has to be kind of driven out in halloween town the whole point is no 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 the monsters are the ones who are actually living in a, in a way that is most fully human right uh it, it's taken to its ultimate postmodern conclusion in something like hotel transylvania when you have like the monsters become stars at their own horror movie conventions because we've become so jaded and missing the the kind of like metaphysical grounding that monsters give us. And I think it's super interesting that, right, really it, it happens because we no longer need to have the warning of the external, right? We, we want to use the, use the monster as a way of kind of like actualizing developing subjectivity. Absolutely. Like, like 100%. And I think that that, that strain I think it's really important because you're totally right about the Halloween and the, the um, oh my God, Hotel Transylvania. Um, you're, you're so right about that um, distinction, right? That, that shift, right? Because there's, there's this kind of like jaded flux that happens a lot in like this popular appraisal of the monstrous, especially when it's rendered down to, to stuff for children, um, that strips the monstrous of their monstrosity. And, and I think one of the most useful things in Halloween Town is that they keep that monstrosity. You know, the. I mean, do they, or did they just become a certain, a different kind of person? I mean, I, th- I think this is a really useful space to explore because there's certainly limitations to it, right? And, and and there are there are ways in which it succeeds and fails. And I think in certain respects, they absolutely do retain their quality as being monsters, as being something othered, as being on the edge of these spaces. And I think Luke's story arc is a key part of that, um, because we never really learn whose beauty standards Luke is is held under the thumb of, whether that's intra Halloween Town or something that's bled in from the human world. So we're kind of forced to realize that it's our own you know it's it's human it, it's it's from the viewer that these things are applied but at the same time you know i mean like this is a disney children's movie so the vampires aren't like drinking blood and, and the monstrosity is inherently tempered by the nature of the thing so i think it is also limited it doesn't go halloween town doesn't go nearly as hard as i need it to well yeah because what i mean is like is like if in Hotel Transylvania the monster has become like the pastiche that we're desperate for, here the monster is doing what everybody else does. The monster goes to the figure of the monster is in the in the hair salon. The figure of the monster goes to the spa. I, I, I absolutely think that you're right, that Luke is maybe the key to uh to, to maybe the entire film and how it thinks about monstrosity. And actually how it thinks about like what does it mean to even be monstrous in the first place? But I think generally, this is the kind of one of the earliest points at which we sort of collapse the cultural, the the kind of traditional uh, cultural distinction between the monster and uh, as a kind of liminal, marginal figure. You know, Halloween Town looks like, it looks like a Norman Rockwell painting, right? It, It looks like, it's all American. It's it's exactly the kind of place that you would want to live if you were a kid. And I and I and I don't think that's a that's a kind of negative thing. I just think it's a kind of really interesting shift in how in the cultural function, like what what monsters are for, because you know again historically they're they're for providing a kind of like uh, edge case to uh society or culture or specific situations but now they they're these they're this kind of tool 
for a sort of subjective self-actualization. You know, we know who we are because we know who our monsters are. And I think, like, like taking that a little further, I think, like, by inserting the monstrous into the Norman Rockwell painting, I, I think we see the dissonance of the Norman Rockwell painting, right? Like, we question why monsters are excluded from this vision, you know, or at least we can. At least it, at least it cracks that window open and lets in a refreshing breeze. You know, why are these things so flat, so, so like, homogenized? Yeah, yeah. Uh, can, can compare and contrast Halloween Town with the suburbs at the start of the film. If anything, Halloween Town is the realization of American domesticity, right? In contrast to the nightmare of, of the suburbs. And, right? and yeah, we've gone we've gone back looking for the monsters to give our current existence some kind of meaning. Absolutely, and I, and I think we can, we can we can like turn further to Halloween Town and like. What is the function of Benny in Halloween Town? Uh, Benny, in the logic of the movie, Benny does take money for his cab services. However, that appears to be woefully inconsistent and never really truly established. Benny is almost synecdoche for a, a widely available, non-monetized form of transit accessible to the public. Yes, he's not Benny the train conductor, which makes him uh, it, it, like naturally less good. But there's the well, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> uh, but but I think that that kind of greases the gears a little bit too, because we can look and see what is present and what is missing inside of Halloween Town. Right? Halloween Town has a fitness center. Halloween Town has all of the things that you would need for like a happy, healthy, successful life. And we contrast that back to the suburbs, and the suburbs in this movie are in an isolationist prison. You know, like like they are what the suburbs literally are, and that's just capitalism sustaining colonialism and colonialism sustaining capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Hell yeah! So, should we talk about witches? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and to do that, should we start with um, who I take to be your favorite character in the whole film? Oh, absolutely. This is well, welcome to the Respecting Aggie Cromwell Hour at Horror Vanguard, our new daily podcast we will be releasing. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about Aggie. Where where would you like to begin? Uh, so one, Aggie Aggie's played by Debbie Reynolds. Uh, amazing casting. Just, just let that blow your mind for a second. And out there in audience land, that's Carrie Fisher's mom. This is like one of the most like storied stars of the screen of Hollywood. You know, like mind blowing <laughs> that Debbie Reynolds shows up as, and she's like, not. This isn't a pay. This doesn't. It doesn't feel like she's cashing in a paycheck. No, no, no. She she commits to the bit. Every every movie Harrison Ford's been in for the last like four decades feels like he's cashing a paycheck. Yes, y- you know, like like Sad but true. De- Debbie Reynolds, an actor whose skill outstrips Harrison Ford by miles, is is committing in one hundred percent, giving her all to the role of Agatha Cromwell, a witch in a Disney children's made for TV movie. And I love that. I love that so much. So what do you think is so kind of interesting about her as a character? So, so here's kind of what's going on intra the politics of Halloween Town. And, and I, know, I know you wanted to talk about um, kind of municipal politics. And we'll get into that. Um, but the mayor of Halloween Town is, is, is a, a friendly warlock who does magic tricks and seems rather amenable to the people of his community. Um, he, he keeps referencing his big plans. He, he's very much so the kind of Norman Rockwell mayor, you know, like, like oh, yeah. he's, he's got that same kind of quality. His exact character would be 100% home in Mayberry or any of these other like idyllic depictions of the American suburb. However, he's also like a demon from another dimension that's that's gaining control over the citizens to lay siege on the human world, um, which I, I think like. This, this winds up being such an effective way to discuss liberal politics, right? But because when I say liberal here, I very specifically mean this kind of embodiment of liberalism, this centrism, right? This American Democratic Party, this, 
this thing that serves only to prevent movement further to the left and to give the right plausible deniability as they push us further into fascism. That is who Calabar is. That is who the mayor of this town is. And Agatha Cromwell recognizes that. Agatha Cromwell recognizes that, that something is wrong, that it's the mayor. She's putting these pieces together. It, it takes her a while because, I mean, like the conventions of the movie just move a little slow. But if I have any complaint about this movie, it's, it's that it, it t- takes a while. It takes a while to fire up. But I think that that's really, really, really useful for our discussion, right? Because, you know, we talk about like, there's so many awful takes that come out of centrists about how like, oh, like, COVID cases are worth, worse in the South because they have Republican governments, so they're getting what they deserve, y- you know? And, like, that is the exact same kind of mindset that would come out of the people who voted Calabar into office prior to his fascist insurrection. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, it, uh, like, she's very involved in her community. She seems to notice what's going on. Um, it's... It's it's good that uh, I I particularly like the fact that you know this is an older character who is given given agency and is given kind of action and is not just like a comic relief or is there to be um, but is there to kind of pass on their wisdom which I think is actually a kind of really lovely detail. Yes, um, yeah, yes. I, 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 Aggie's great. Yeah, we, yeah, we need to talk about that too. We need to talk about how this movie treats the elderly, right? And especially like. Part of this we can problematize a little bit because, like, yeah, she is put into the role of a grandmother, and and a lot of that is like, and she's also a witch, right? And that's that's the old, like, kind of misogynistic view of Hollywood, right? Old women, you can be one of two things: a witch or a grandmother. Um, but you know, Agatha also gets action scenes. She gets to be a like do some detective work, do some sleuthing. You know, she's got her, like, Gandalf-esque machinations behind the scenes that are going on. Yeah. And so I think that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we contrast this with how Gwen treats her mom, right? Like, Gwen Gwen is treating her mom like she's senile, right? Gwen is treating her mom like... like so in the beginning, we get the sequence where Agatha is telling Gwen that, like, oh, th- things are going wrong in Halloween Town. People are disappearing. So some, something's up. Something bad is happening. And Gwen is like, oh, you, mom, you're just losing it. Pe- people, people disappear all the time. It's called vacation is, is the line. And, and I think like what, what's being reflected here is that like we, we live in a societal system that uh, can't extract value from the elderly unless they're actively dying, unless they're ensconced into this for-profit medical system. And it's, it's really, I, I think, powerful to see Agatha Cromwell as an action hero, doing detective work, you know, helping a younger generation find their feet, doing all of these things that like our elders should be doing if it wasn't for capitalism, who just stuffs them in homes while they extract value. No, completely. Uh, and, you know, um, the, the end of the film gives all of the, all of the, all, all of the, the, the generations in the family, a kind of useful role all of them are essential. Nobody is discarded. And they they culminate by kind of being like, okay, well, Aggie should come and live with us. And instead of being excluded, you know, from this from that kind of social relationship anymore. Um, so like it's it's honestly, it's honestly a really kind of like nice story. I think I think uh it she's a great character. Yes. <laughs> But should we talk about her her antagonist? Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 talk about Calabar. Yes. So, what is Calabar's plan here? Um, Calabar's plan is to turn all of the monsters of Halloween Town into evil versions of themselves, and then take over Halloween Town, and then take over the mortal world. Yeah. It's it's a it's a strange plan. It's a uh, he's bold. He's making moves. They're all bad. <laughs> he's, um, he's and primarily, yeah. primarily it's strange because because the whole existence of Halloween Town is predicated upon the fact that there is no antagonism anymore. Right? There is no 
there is no antagonism between uh, hu- humans and monsters. There once was, uh, as Aggie tells them, but there was a withdrawing. And so the, the, the monsters and witches and warlocks and vampires have set up their own kind of utopian enclave. So there is that, that antagonism that he's depending on, that Calabar is depending upon uh, in order to enact his violent plan of domination doesn't exist. He has a kind of, the, 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 the social and cultural relationship between humans and the monstrous has shifted. He has a very outdated metaphysics, which is why his plan was doomed to fail. Exactly. And, he, and he's got the same ideological drive that we see in contemporary fascism. You know, he, he's not actually looking at the material relationships and the societal connections in the world around him. He is using this kind of broken ideology to weaponize people, to turn people into versions of themselves that are nothing more than weapons in his gambit for power. Right. All of the monsters of Halloween Town are disposable pawns from the perspective of Calabar. They're a means to an ends rather than members of a community with needs. And I think that, that that's that's incredibly and deeply, unfortunately, very useful for our current political moment. Oh, completely. Yeah. And there's also the kind of wider thing that like as a mayor, he doesn't seem to do a great deal. Right. There's a kind of lots of gesture politics. He's constantly doing tricks in public to impress people, but he can't even get people's names right. So there's some of these great details, which are just like played as jokes, that reveal really clearly that there is there is a sort of like facade being presented here. Oh, ab- absolutely. And it depends yeah. upon whether you're going to be just satisfied with that facade or not. He, he is your he, Calabar is your standard democratic politician. He'll, he'll make some <laughs> lollipops appear and, and try and cheer you up with good talking. But ultimately, all he ever does is... is, is so there's a scene where, where Agatha confronts him and, and she's like, hey, something's gone wrong. I've, I've got evidence. I'm making moves. I'm going to fix this. And Calabar's like, hey, just give me two days. You know, you know, in two days, I'll do something about it. And that is literally the best you can get out of a Democrat is make them promise to yeah. do it later. Um, yeah. But, but But that kind of performative appraisal of politics right like that's not the thing in and of itself right it's calabar isn't a bad he's he's not bad at being a politician because he just hand waves and and does some tricks in public and keeps people happy with the spectacle because that's useful for him that sustains a system that he's a part of that furthers his goals in the same way that when a democratic politician does their hand waving and like Kamala puts on like a pride t-shirt and hand waves at a parade, right? Like, like that, that spectacle is designed to sustain a greater system with, with greater yeah. goals. That, that isn't just an earnest expression of, of something, right? When Calabar goes into the community and, and hands you a pride lollipop, it's not because he has a deeply uh, moving concern for a political issue. It's because he knows that this is the least he can get away with. You know, without actually threatening his material position as a soon-to-be-like, I don't know, global fascist wizard. I actually, I actually think that's a really good way into talking about something else I wanted to bring up, which is, what do you think about this film's presentation of magic? Here we fucking go. Um, so there's a lot. So okay, so first, because we're talking about Calabar. I want to say that I'm kind of like one of the things that I guess this this this, this is a formalism thing, but I'm really disappointed um, in how they did Calabar's tricks. So so Cal- Calabar's all of Calabar's tricks are, are sleight of hand. He pulls a lollipop out of his ear and then makes it disappear in front of somebody, you know, and and, and then he like pulls an ice cream cone out of his jacket, you know, like every every trick that we see Calabar do is something that you can just do with sleight of hand. You can pull a lollipop out of your ear as as a sleight of hand trick. It's really easy to just palm a lollipop and make it look like you're pulling it out of your ear. It's also really easy to sleeve a lollipop right in someone right in, right in front of someone's face and just make it vanish. You know, in a way that would be totally convincing to a child, especially. This is the same the same with making a, a, an ice cream cone appear. This is like a formalism thing, but like they, they do this all with special effects when they could have just had a professional magician train this actor for a couple of weeks. This is easy stuff. You could have done it. So that's like that's like a little thing, but I think it, I think it speaks to kind of like larger issues in this movie's appraisal of magic, right? 
um, we we've got we've got some like there's discourse afoot going on here. Um, all of Agatha's spells are in Welsh, which I could only take that as a statement in full and organized support of Welsh independence from England. Um, very complicated of Halloween Town to go there, but it went there. So. Yeah, yeah. Halloween Town is uh, the favorite film of Plaid Company, the, the Welsh Nationalist Party. <laughs> oh dear. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know. Like like it's got that kind of aggravating oversimplification too, where it's just like you have to want it. It has to be in your heart. You you just have to ask. Like like that. It's it's very for kids. This isn't a dark song. Well, no, but here's 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 the, here's where it gets a little tricky because this is a really common liberal move, and our our dear friend and comrade uh, Labour Kyle has talked about this a lot, which is the 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 tendency to present kind of achievement as being something that is manifested by desire. You know, if you really want it, you will unlock the magic that is within you and be able to transform material reality around you. And Kyle calls this a kind of liberal fascism. Um, and I and I sort of agree because um, there is no there is no system of magic. Right. There is the kind of like gestures toward a system of magic. There's a there's a there's a glowy thing. There's there's the Welsh. But really, it's about the man of it's. It's about the manifestation of desire, right? It's about the. It's about the. Do you want it enough, in order to be able to kind of exert a kind of power? Um, and that's the thing that kind of like, because like the kind of classic story of like children learning about magic involves learning a system. You know, uh, the the easily the best one is Ursula uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, Earthsea novels. Because that's that's about learning. It has a very kind of anthropological view of magic as about, about being being about understanding the true nature of existence. It isn't just about this kind of like, uh, you know, fascist Nietzschean will to power that if you want it enough, you will be able to manifest something. So I I think this is this is part of the reason why I, I I'm like, there's lots about the film that I like, but I think as with all films that deal with magic and deal with this idea of like, if you really know what you want, you will be able to get it. There is an element of which I think we should be cautious about there, right? This idea that like desire is understood and unmediated in such an, as such a kind of direct and uncomplicated way. Um, and how does that desire become more powerful by by reinforcing, reinscribing the bonds of the nuclear family right at the end? Yes, right? I think that's really important. We need to talk about that. Yeah. So, 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 what do you think about that? I, so, I, 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 I realize I may have just dropped some some real, real galaxy brain takes. No, but. no, I think you're totally <laughs> correct, and and I think like we we can contrast what Agatha's doing as magic in the, in the, in like the text of the movie. Right. Cause Agatha has a kind of, she, she's practicing like a, like, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this, like, like almost an anthropological approach to magic a la Ursula Le Guin. Right. Like in, in a, in a much more oversimplified and basic way. Right. She's, she's talking about this kind of mythological Anglo Welsh historic stuff, right? Like King Arthur Merlin, you know, she's she's using these Welsh incantations, right? Like, in you you know, like yeah, she and like she was witches brew out of a box. Sure, who's got time to you make know, their own witches brew these days? That's what you get for using instant. <laughs> Lesson learned. Um, but like that, I think like contrasts really desperately to what happens at the end with Marnie. Where, where it's just kind of like magically wish it. And one of the things that that approach to the magical can uh, like necessarily hinges upon is that like you, you, you need perfect actors. What if the thing in Marnie's heart was that she really wanted an Xbox? You know, what if, what if deep under the surface she was just like really sore she didn't get one for her birthday? And then in, in, yeah, exactly. instead of the, the magic wand landing perfectly in the pumpkin and saving the day, an Xbox appeared in the pumpkin and everyone died. You know, and, exactly. and that's that's it, the problem there. Yeah. 
Well, that's one of them. This idea a small that, problem. That, 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 that desire is a kind of like un, uncomplicated thing, that desire is like unmediated. And, you know, we don't know what we want. We don't, we, we have no idea. Uh, we, we have to be. But if, again, if we read this in Lacanian terms, and this is what I mean when I talk about the film as a kind of ideological state apparatus that interpolates the viewer, the whole point is to show the viewer how to want what, you sh- what you're supposed to want, which is a much closer bond with your family and a move out of the stultifying homogeneity of suburbia into something which is a bit more kind of alive and, ironically enough, human. Ab- absolutely. One, 100%. You know, and if this movie wanted to overcome this kind of failing with what happens with Marnie at the end... Agatha would have had to actually teach her some kind of magic instead of just being like, hope for the best, kiddo. Yeah, yeah. It, if you want it enough, if you... Oh, and it's like, uh, I don't know about that one. Right, like, the, yeah, that's just like a standard Zizekian thing. The thing, that, in the, like, the thing that we want is never really the thing that we want. You know, our, our desires are always obfuscated and bent around all of these other parts of our world that we can hardly even recognize. You know, like, you're absolutely right. It's never clear. It's never simple. And believing that your desires are simple, that's not that's not just convenient, right? It's not just convenient that like, oh, if you're pure of heart and good, you you can will goodness to the no, that's that has an ideological function. Yeah. And and this is and this is the point. Like we expect children's media to to impart a kind of moral lesson, but it is also often implicitly imparting an ideological one as well. Mm-hmm. 100%. And the, and you can't you can't separate those two things. They're delivered they're delivered simultaneously and together. Yes, which is why I'm proud to announce Halloween Town 5 Marnie joins a union. Uh Marnie <laughs> is now a graduate student at which university in Halloween Town and she is leading her local GSU to a glorious victory against the university staff. So, uh, uh, 2023 release. I look forward to Zizek's cameo. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Zizek Dor, how do we how do we stop these people? Oh my god. <laughs> uh, any 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 final thoughts on on Halloween Town? Uh, so many so many final thoughts on on Halloween. I love the props. I, I really like this movie is like candy um, for 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 my brain, um, and it's delicious. Um. One thing I would want to touch on really quickly. Um, so Marnie has two siblings, a younger sister and a younger brother. Her younger brother, Dylan, I think is really interesting, especially for like some of the interests that you and I share. Uh-huh. So uh, D- Dylan's whole thing is is facts and logic. Um, you know, I don't want to saddle Dylan with this, but in, in so many ways, he's kind of like a, um, proto Ben Shapiro, right? Like just uh, even after arriving in Halloween town and, and seeing ghouls and goblins and magic, he's like, I, uh, logic dictates that I am currently dreaming. This cannot logically be happening. So something I must be, you know, have hit my head or something like that. And what I, what I find really interesting about his character is how blatantly his position in the movie reveals logic as ideology, right? Like logic isn't just a set of factual tools. It's not, it's not a unbiased appraisal of the world around you. It's an ideological project. And his character is so good at, at kind of exploring how that ideological ideological project of being a facts over your feelings guy fails. Yeah, it's the limitations of positivism, right? You know, this idea of like, oh, I can't prove this, therefore, but it gets contrasted with this like, if you if you just find find you you have got the magic in you, Dylan. That's all you needed to do was you just needed to believe you needed to stop thinking about facts and logic and you just needed to, to, to really want something and you would, you would, everything would kind of come together. And it's like, I, I completely agree with you. It's a great way of highlighting the sort of the, the flaw, the, the inherent limitation of this, of this, uh, 
positivism taken to like the the absurdest degree. And yeah, yeah, I think you're you're, you're totally correct. There, there is absolutely something absurdist at, at the core of Halloween Town, which I think like speaks to this kind of absurdist left tradition, right? Like it's it, it gives us a way to uh, exactly what you said at the shop top of the show to to do some like. To, to do some de-turning with the text of a Disney made-for-TV children's movie. Yep. And and that, I think, is what we have done pretty successfully here. One, one would hope. Uh, thank you, thank you, everyone, for spending spending some of your Halloween with us. I hope you are, are out there in the community unionizing monsters to equitably distribute candy and laugh in the face of every conservative who uses that bit as some, uh, I don't know, terrible gag. <laughs> in short, uh, yeah, to kind of paraphrase China Mavel here, Halloween is an inherently communistic holiday. It is our holiday, and conservatives shouldn't be allowed to have fun during it. Yes, there's, there's the line we go out on. <laughs> Stay spooky, everyone. We will see you in November, a.k.a. Spooky Season Part 2. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.